You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Joni Malello Classen. Her father, Vincent Malello of New Jersey, and her mom, the former Frankie Thompson of Milan, Georgia, were members of the greatest generation. Generation. So like me, Joni is a proud baby boomer, and she's also a proud Army brat. Her father served his country in World War II and Korea. Joni attended her first three grades in two different countries and two high schools in two different states. Her professional background is in journalism and public relations and worked as an Associated Press newswoman. She's also worked in public relations for a hospital, a casino, there you go, I love that, a public utility company, and an economic development organization. Following her mother's death in Columbus, Georgia, Joni and her father became a team, doing living history programs throughout Georgia, including FDR's Little White House, the Atlanta History Center, Fort Benning, of course, World War II Heritage Days, schools, churches, and special military events. She has been Morrell Marauder's liaison officer and major cheerleader in getting Congress to award the Congressional Gold Medal to the unit. She is also the Georgia State Director and President of the Baker's Dozen Chapter of the American Rose of the River Association. Her son, Michael, lives in Reno, Nevada, and bless her heart, Joni is a two-time cancer survivor. Joni, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Pete. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, your father, uh, we'll get into his service with the uh, Special Forces Group in Burma called the Morel Marauders, which few people probably uh, know about and maybe a lot of people have forgotten about. But your father uh, had a very... Uh, I have to say, tragic childhood due to a pandemic. Uh, which That's correct. Relate, yeah, which people can relate to these days. Tell us about your father's childhood. Um, well, I, I like to say, Pete, that my dad mirrored the entire 20th century. Um, when Daddy was born, World War One was still going on, and, and women couldn't vote at that time. He was born um, in 1918, and he was the fifth child of Italian immigrants. They were from Benevento, Italy. And uh, Dad's mother died from the 1918 flu epidemic when he was three months old. And he was put in an orphanage uh, for little Italian boys in New Jersey, uh, the Villa O'Connor Orphanage. It was in Gladstone, New Jersey. And um, Dad, uh, being in an orphanage is what shaped my dad's entire life. So actually, the 1918 flu epidemic, the last major pandemic, Determine what Daddy did um, as he grew older. Um, he, he used to. He liked to say that uh, at the Villa O'Connor Orphanage, he slept in a boys' dormitory with a nun in the center of the room, and she had a tent around her bed. 
you know, and if a little boys got upset in the night, she would go comfort them. And in the Army, he slept in a barracks, and instead of a nun, he had a first sergeant. But I think, I mean, and truly, I think my dad felt very, very comfortable in the military because of the structured environment. It reminded him of how he grew up. But um, something tragic also happened at the orphanage. In, in 1927, uh, Pete, there was uh, a fire. Uh, it, it was at midnight in November, you know, so it was really cold outside. And um, the boys' dormitory got, uh, caught on fire, and they all went out. And I have a picture. It's the only picture I have of my dad uh, from that, you know, from his childhood because they didn't have pictures. And um, it's a photo of a nun with a bunch of little Italian boys with coats that the townspeople um, the, uh, it was in um, Gladstone, New Jersey, where the orphanage was, and they must have given the little boys coats because they look so pathetic. And they're standing there. Some of them are crying, watching their dormitory burn. And what's really tragic is three of the little boys ran back inside and and died during the fire. And it was, the story was picked up by the New York Times, and it was a major story at the time. And then, yeah, and and as Daddy got older, Pete, um, they sent him to the boys' home um, in Arlington, New Jersey, and he remembered the address up until the day he died. And he he liked being, uh, you know, I mean, he was a baby when he went to the orphanage, so his first mother figure was a nun. And... um, and his memories of of being there are are actually good ones, um, but they're they're not so good at the boys' home. And while he was at the boys' home, he must have been around ten or eleven feet. The dad that he didn't know he had because he, nobody ever went to visit him at the orphanage. But the dad that he didn't know he had went to get him. And the big depression, the Great Depression, was going on at the time. And, you know, people were starving. They didn't have fuel to to heat their houses. It was a really bad time. And my dad doesn't have bitter memories uh, about that at all. But I think, you know, looking at it, that his father went to get him because he was probably old and big enough to work. So... His father, after the flu epidemic, Daddy was the fifth child of uh, Italian immigrants, and during that time, his dad had married a woman who lost her husband in the flu epidemic with three children, and when they got married, being a good Italian Catholic, they had six more children. So my dad went from the orphanage home to that family where he didn't know anybody, and... Um, you know, he, he didn't complain. Um, he was raised by nuns. He was taught not to complain and to do what he was told. Um, but he always felt like an outsider in that family. Sure. And but, but he has, um, as he grew older, Pete, uh, it was in Bluton, New Jersey. Daddy was born in Bluton, uh, which is a beautiful little town. It's a revolutionary war town on a hill. 
and um, dad, there's a waterfall in the town, and Dad could hear the waterfall from his room, and um, he used to do all the things that little boys did, young boys did at that time. That he, as he got older, they would hang out uh, by a wall, and they would uh, sing songs. Oh, and, and I forgot to mention that. When Daddy was at the boys' home, he learned to play the bones, which not many people do today. In fact, he's taught people here in Columbus, Georgia, how to play them. And he, uh, they're like a, a percussion instrument, sort of like the, playing the spoons. And Daddy was really good at it. And um, he would play the bones, and they would sing songs while they were, you know, sitting on the wall doing things that kids growing up in the 1930s uh, did. There was no money. And um, uh, there's one little song that that he sang, Pete, that to me describes what it was like. Um, And if I can remember it, um, uh, it was like down in the old neighborhood. Down in the old neighborhood, so we were happy, the dollars were few, so we were happy, the good times we knew, where are the boys and the gals, neighbors and neighborly gals, but I wish we could all do it again, down in the old neighborhood, and, you know... To me, I mean, I don't do it the way Daddy did it, but his inflection when he sang that was like a song right out of the 1930s. And, you know, I've, we've been up there to that little area, um, and his house at that time, um, his dad's house that he was brought home to with all the children, was across the street from the Mount Carmel Catholic Church. And Dad was fortunate um, to go to the seventh grade at Mount Carmel, and then he quit school and went to work with his dad, who was a mason. Um, one thing that I found interesting was on, you know, the ship's manifest, when the immigrants come over from whatever their cu- country they're leaving from, most of them at that time didn't have an occupation listed by their name, but his dad did. You know, it said that... Um, he was a mason, he had a scar on his face, and he arrived with dollars into the United States. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a very hard time back then for, for everybody, especially for immigrants. And at one time, not when Dad and his dad were around, um, Italians weren't even allowed to live within the city limits of Bhutan. And now, you know, the town is... I mean, it's full of all sorts of different ethnic um, groups and wonderful restaurants. There's even a Uzbekistan restaurant in Bhutan today. But um, and and Dad worked. Uh, he worked uh, as he got older. Pete, he worked for the CCCs um, in in Morristown, New Jersey, uh, cutting down trees with Dutch elm disease. And he worked for the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, um, for the town of Bhutan, uh, you know, where he lived. And then right before um, he joined the military, he worked for the uh, Bhutan Molding Company. Hmm. Did, did, I, guess this, 
this this uh, your father's background, uh, Joni, uh, probably prepared him very well for army life, didn't it? Well, I, I think it did. You know, um, he 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 was used to he was used to the structure. Um, he was used to being around uh, little boys, and then as he got older, uh, I think he probably fit in very well. And Daddy actually um, joined in 1940, Pete, uh, before the war. And he, he, when he joined, he wanted adventure. That, that's what he joined for. Uh, I mean, the, the war was going on in Europe at that time, but not in the United States. And Daddy wanted to see the world. And which was a kid, you know. Um, and w- when he joined, he he asked for the Philippines. That the only people that could get assigned to the Philippines at that time um, were, I guess, people with fire service. That's probably a good thing. He wasn't, you know, simpler because of the Bataan Oh, when he went to join, he joined uh, his good friend, Steve Volcar, they hitchhiked to to sign up. And the first place they went to, Daddy was turned down because he had an old broken arm injury. So he actually had to hitchhike with uh, Steve to another place. And he was... uh, you know, able to join here. And then yeah. Okay, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, Joni, i tell you what, we're going to go to a first break, and then we'll come back with your father's uh, Army uh, service during World War II and his military career and the Morrell Marauders. Okay, we'll be right back, folks. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. This is Jim Davis with Operation Santa. Each year, we purchase Christmas gifts for all of the children of all Georgia servicemen and women who are deployed overseas during the holidays. Our annual fundraising event, the Freedom Fighters Open Golf Tournament, is being held on Friday, November 6th at the Bridge Mill Golf Club in Canton, Georgia. I would like to personally invite you to join us in raising money to support Georgia's troops and their families. For more information and to register a team, go to OperationSanta.org. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, welcome back. We're talking to uh, Johnny about her, uh, Joni about her father, who became a Morrell's Marauder. But out of the, uh, you say he joined in 1940 before World War II started. So let's start there and then uh, move us through uh, his career where he eventually joined the Morrell Marauders. Go ahead. Okay, um, as I uh, mentioned, uh, Pete, Daddy, uh, hitchhiked with his friend Steve Bolcar, and he, he signed up in 1940, 
and he was sent to Fort Slocum, uh, New York, uh, which was a holding area, and it was, uh, I, I think, an island um, um, in the river there, and he could hear um, the music coming across the river from the Glen Island Casino. And one thing I've noticed about Dad uh, throughout his life is that food was really important to him. And and I think it's because they didn't have a lot of food during the Depression. And the food at Fort Slocum, he remembered very fondly as being very good. But from there, he got on a ship, and he was sent to Panama. Uh, and he served with the old 33rd Infantry in, in Panama. And uh, Dad said that... Dad went through jungle school before the jungle school existed. Uh, it hadn't yet it hadn't yet been formed, and he said they used to go on hundred um, mile hikes from Riahata, um, you know, out to wherever they were going. And uh, Dad did all the things that uh, he experienced all the things that. I guess you experience when you're fighting or, or assigned to a jungle area. He came down with malaria uh, several times while he was there, which I think maybe helped build up his immunity uh, when he was in Burma. Yeah. And, and then on December 7th, I mean, there was a whole lot that Daddy did in Panama. Uh, and uh, ironically, one of his friends here, Bob Eatman, who was 14 years old when he joined the Army. Bob lived in Sharpsburg, Georgia. And as they, uh, they became friends when, when they were in their 80s, and uh, good friends. And they were actually on the same ship going to Panama. And they were with the 33rd. And on December the 7th, 1944, I mean, 41, I'm sorry, <laughs> Um, they, they were on a ship headed to the West Indies uh, to, to Trinidad. And um, that's when Pearl Harbor happened. And they had, you know, at that time, they didn't know where Pearl Harbor was. And so Dad uh, served three years in Trinidad. And huh. he was, um, so, I mean, two, yeah, two years, I'm sorry, Pete, in Trinidad. So his three-year assignment was up. And a bunch of them were headed back to the United States for reassignment, and they stopped off in Puerto Rico. And that's when, you know, they, w uh, they were asked, uh, they were told, rather, about uh, a dangerous and hazardous mission, uh, you know, an expendable mission. And everybody uh, that Daddy was with, they all volunteered. And, and so Dad volunteered because those men were like his brothers. They were his family. And almost the entire um, 2nd Battalion, there were three battalions with Merrill's Marauders, and almost the entire 2nd Battalion came out of the Caribbean, Trinidad. Wow. And um, um, you were talking about the Congressional Gold Medal. Um, on September, on September 21st this year, it's the 77th anniversary, was the 77th anniversary. Uh, when Dad volunteered, that was 1943. So on September 21st this year, 
it was the 77th anniversary of 2,000 of those volunteers, um, about 1,000 that came from the Caribbean and another 1,000 that came from Army posts all across the country. They went to uh, Camp Stoneman, California, which was a holding area for troops shipping out to the, the South Pacific or wherever. And those men had no, those 2,000 men had absolutely no idea where they were going. They didn't have a name. Um, and then on September 21st, they got on the SS Blur Line, which was a former luxury ship that had been converted to a troop ship. And they headed out, and they still had no idea where they were going, uh, but they were headed to New Caledonia to pick up um, another group of men that made up the other battalion, and they were uh, combat season soldiers from battles in the South Pacific. And and Dad um, had a had a lot, you know almost all of them had very vivid memories of, about being on the lure line. Um, Daddy uh, sang songs on the lure line. He played cards. He told uh, jokes, and then they had classes, you know, that they had to attend. And one of the men, Bob Passanisi, who's alive today, um, Bob is 96 years old. Daddy would be 102 if he were alive today. And Bob Passanisi's MOS was radio communications. And there was a problem on board the lure line with the communications, and the captain asked Bob if he would fix it, which he did. So Bob was given special privileges, you know, a better place to stay, better food, and he was assigned the nightly radio show. And he had accidentally, these guys were young, you know, they were full of mischief and all sorts of things, and Bob had accidentally found out what their destination was, but he couldn't tell anybody. And so instead, there was a really popular song called The Song of India. And he closed the radio show every night uh, with that song to kind of give the men uh, an idea of where they were headed, which was Bombay, <laughs> India. <laughs> you know, which... Uh, and then one of the other marauders, James Richardson... They, um, somebody picked up a little dog and smuggled him on the lure line. And they, they named the dog Lure Line, and it went with them all the way uh, to, to India. Wow. And, uh, and then when they were in India, they still didn't have a name. And what's really interesting that a lot of people may not know about Merrill's Marauders, um, Merrill's Marauders, Pete, were the brainchild of FDR, uh, President Roosevelt, and uh, Winston Churchill. And they came up with the idea to form that top-secret commando unit in 1943 at the Quebec Conference. And the marauders were supposed to go into Burma and, and, and kind of finish what the British chindits had been forced out of Burma and, and been unable to accomplish. And the, um, the marauders, um, well, you know they were actually uh, a suicide uh, mission, but, yeah. but when, when, they were first, uh, when they were first formed, they were a British unit. 
They were not an Amer- they were not an American unit. They were assigned to Lord Louis Mountbatten's Southeast Asia Command, which was you know the big theater over there, and the China Burma India Theater under Stilwell. Uh, I I think kind of fell underneath that. And General Stilwell really hated the fact that American troops were assigned to the British. But but while they were with the British, they, they got excellent jungle training by um, General Ord Wingate, who trained them on long-range penetration patrols. And that's what they were. That's what they were known for. You know, was there? That's what they were doing. Because completely behind enemy lines and when they when they start well they were trained in Marguerite and other places and when they started out on their mission Pete they had no insignia they had no name and what they did if you're familiar with the p38 can openers a little tiny yeah. can opener daddy kept one on his keychain until he died they pinned those on them. That was their identifying mark. And um, Stillwell, as I mentioned, didn't... I'm trying to get all the facts straight, Pete. That's you know, okay. You're doing floating around in my head. Um, but Stillwell didn't like the fact that, that the troops were uh, under, under the British. So he did whatever finagling he had to do to get them assigned to him, which happened at the end of 1943 in December. And they were um, reconstituted in January of 1944 as the 5307th Composite Unit Provisional. And and their commander uh, was General Merrill. However... Colonel Hunter, Colonel Charles Hunter, was actually their first commander when they were assigned to the British. And Colonel Hunter was also their last commander because General Merrill had a couple of heart attacks, um, you know, when they were uh, completing their their mission, Pete, which was to capture the Michinau airfield, Northern Burma's airfield, um, uh, and and that was co- you know that was completely held by um, the Japanese at that time. So Colonel Hunter was their last commander, and he was actually their longest serving commander. But you don't hear very much about uh, Colonel Hunter. Oh, and by the way, Pete, Colonel Hunter wrote a book called Galahad, and right now it's for sale on the internet for almost nine hundred dollars, and that of all the publicity, um, you know, that's happened because of Merrill's Marauders and the Congressional uh, Gold Medal. Um, but getting back, um, Dad was actually, Pete, on the, on the patrol where the first Merrill's Marauder, Captain Landis, was killed. Dad was a scout, blue combat team, INR, uh, intelligence and Reconnaissance Patrol. Uh, he was with Headquarters Company in the 2nd Battalion, and he was part of a five-man patrol um, when, Cap- uh, when Private Landis was killed. And Private Landis was one of the youngest on the patrol, 
and he was actually combat seasoned. He was one of the soldiers that had been, uh, that they didn't, Dad, almost the entire 2nd Battalion, as I mentioned, uh, came out of the Caribbean. And those guys, you know, they were, they were tight. They'd been together for a long time. But they, they were not combat season, and so, uh, uh, you know, they added some, some people who had seen battle in, in there with them. And, and Cap, uh, Private Landis was one of those. And Daddy and his foxhole buddy, Eddie Icecan, were the last two survivors from that patrol. And I'm bouncing around here. Uh, Pete has thought I'm into my head. It's very interesting. Uh, we're going to go to our next break, but when we get back, uh, we'll pick up uh, with the uh, incursion into Burma, but also uh, let's clarify how the Morel Marauders got their name. Uh, okay. We'll okay. Okay, folks, we'll be right back. Uh, thank you very much. Joni, we'll be right back. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army with TRICARE. career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian really? opportunities all yep. over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits. And so by the way, that's better. Joni, you've been on, you were on my show once, right? Yes, I was. I was. That was, um... Yes, I was. I was nervous then also. <laughs> well, you shouldn't be. I've been doing deep breathing. <laughs> okay, David, is everybody coming in good now? Yeah, a little bit better. Good morning. But, uh, we need to uh, talk after the show, please. This is Jim Davis with Operation Santa. Each year, we purchase Christmas gifts for all of the children of all Georgia servicemen and women who are deployed overseas. Now I can. You're much louder now, Pete. Thank you. The Freedom Fighters Open Golf Tournament is being held on Friday, November 6th at the Bridge Mill Golf Club in Canton, Georgia. I would like to personally invite you to join us in raising money to support Georgia's troops and their families. For more information and to register a team, go to OperationSanta.org. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, Joni, first of all, tell the folks uh, how Morel Marauders really got their name. Um, I will, Pete, but I, I kind of want to finish what I was saying about that first patrol and, and Dad's uh, uh, Daddy's uh, foxhole buddy. They were actually together for four years, and, and they stayed in touch with each other over the phone. But Daddy had not seen Eddie in um, 64, 64 or 68 years, and I drove him up to see Eddie um, for the first time, and... You know, they were old men, Pete, but they didn't look like old men when they hugged each other. They, you know, there was something about them that just kind of took you back to how they must have been when they were young men. It, it was pretty amazing. And then Eddie died the, the next year, but it was um, one of the highlights of Daddy. And then Daddy was the last of those men from the five-man uh, patrol. 
uh, but Merrill's Marauders obtained their name. It was actually a member of the press, a reporter, who dubbed them Merrill's Marauders after their commander, uh, General Frank D. Merrill. And that's how they got the name. And here in Georgia, uh, up in Dahlonega, uh, Camp Frank D. Merrill is named after, um, after their commander. And uh, uh, Camp Merrill is where the mountain phase of ranger training is, is conducted out at uh, Fort Benning, the Airborne Ranger Training Brigade. Oh, okay. And, All right, so your dad uh, is now in Burma. Tell us a little bit about those actions. They, they were in horrific combat over there in very, very primitive conditions. They, they were. It was, it was a suicide mission. Um, Lieutenant General Sam Wilson, uh, who was a young lieutenant at the time, uh, he was one of the younger ones uh, who lied about his age and, and joined at uh, 16. And uh, he rose to the rank. He was he was the highest ranking and the longest serving. I believe he served forty something years before he retired. And uh, General Sam had he he was privy to uh, to the formation of uh, of the Marauders uh, by Winston Churchill and uh, FDR. And he said that that the Marauders were a political football between the British and and the Americans because both of them wanted them and and there were the the marauders in a way were really mistreated uh, one of the things that uh, General Wilson said was they in essence were a suicide mission there was a plan on paper to get them into Burma but there was no plan to get them out because they weren't expected to come out. Their mission was supposed to do them in. And they, their objective was the Michinau airfield. And in order to do that, they, well, they, they fought completely behind enemy lines. They had no mechanized vehicles. There were no jeeps. There were no tanks. The only thing they had were mules and what they could carry on their back. My dad said he change clothes once on the whole mission. They were smelly, dirty, their clothes were ragged, they had dysentery, um, and whatever other jungle diseases, um, you know, that they had. In fact, they had a word for it. It was called AOE, an accumulation of everything. And they not only fought the Japanese, uh, they had... um, and the history says they fought five major battles and 30 minor engagements. But in addition to that, Pete, they fought every, they fought leeches and every jungle disease that, that was possible. And so their numbers uh, were reduced, not only by the Japanese, but by being there in the jungle. And they were kept completely alive by C-47 airdrops. Without those airdrops, they would have they would have died because that was the way they were resupplied and and obtained their food. And their food was only C rations and K rations. Um, when the Chinese later joined them, um, the, the Chinese refused to eat their food, so they were given better food. And the marauders had to trade things in order to to get better food. 
they were mistreated. Um, food that they were supposed to get uh, went to uh, Chenault's 14 Air Force. Um, after the mission was over, one of the oldest uh, marauders that's alive today, Gabriel Kinney, he's 99, he lives over in Alabama. And Gabriel uh, was one of those who came out of the South Pacific. So he was combat season when he volunteered for the Marauders. And um, when they reached the airfield, there were about 2,000 replacements. When they reached the airfield, let me back up here for a minute, Pete, because when they reached the airfield, out of those 3,000, uh, almost 3,000, it was slightly less. Uh, but out of all those men, there were only 200, about 200, who were still standing. And they looked like walk, the Walking Dead, like the movie, who were capable of combat. And they seized the airfield. That You know, they were lucky. They, they seized it, those, those few men. And almost immediately, planes started coming in to the airfield because the airspace had been freed. Um, you know, the, the marauders had to hack their way through jungle. I mean, that really thick jungle, the, the, the thick, thick stuff, wide enough and tall enough for the men and the mules, uh, you know, to, to get through. And, that's, and then in order to get into Burma, they had uh, to climb, I think it was 6,100-foot uh, 6, mountain, uh, the Kamung Mountains, and it was during the monsoon season. Their records, the mules, when they were going down, they fell over the edge, and a lot of their records were lost. But so they were a really motley-looking group of men when they actually got to the airfield, um, and they seized it. I remember the date; it was May seventeenth, nineteen forty-four, and that's when um, the replacement started coming in. And there were about 2,000 of those men, and most of them, Pete, were, had not seen combat. They didn't know how to take their guns apart, some of them. And the planes were not even landing on the ground. They were just taxiing over the airfield, and, you know, and the men, and the men were, were jumping out. And my dad was so weak. A lot of the men didn't make it to the airfield, uh, not because they were dead. They were in hospitals, or uh, and and some, you know, so, some were dead. They're, they're, you know, it was um, you, you can imagine. But Daddy had uh, dysentery and malaria so bad they they had put him on a mule, um, you know, because he was so weak. But he was too weak to stay on the mule. So, so when they were going up the mountain, he had to hold on to the to the mule's tail, and um, and then when they were at the airfield, they tagged a lot of the men um, as unfit for combat, and Daddy was one of those. And the Marauders are the ones that served under General Merrill. They're the ones that walk the walk, and. Uh, the almost thousand miles. They were the ones that volunteered in 1943. So they are the ones, Pete, when we say how many are alive today, um, there, are, there are nine Merrill's Marauders out of those 3,000 who are alive today. We 
have no idea how many replacements are alive today. And those guys um, are, I mean, they're old peeps, um, but they were a bit younger. Um, I believe Stanley Sassine in Atlanta there, where you are, I believe Stanley is uh, the last replacement to the 5307. And, you know, I wish we knew how many were alive, but we don't. But when there were 50 Merrill's Marauders still living, there were 250 replacements still living. And now the Marauders have dwindled down to nine. And um, so there are more of the replacements out there who are alive. And with the Congressional Gold Medal, more of them are calling in to, to get information on, you know, on, on the medal and when the ceremony is going to be. So all this publicity, this wave of publicity that Merrill's Marauders are receiving right now, and, I mean, it's absolutely amazing, the Associated Press, um, uh, uh, a writer in Savannah, Russ Bynum, he sent a story out last week about it. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times is going to have a story this week, um, and the New York Times is going to have a story. Daddy was in the, in the New York Times, you know, in 1927 with the fire at, at the orphanage. Mm -hmm. and, um, and one thing I wanted to say, Pete, is the idea... To pursue the Congressional Gold Medal actually came from my dad. And you may not remember, but I did the newsletter for uh, Major General Ken Lohr, uh, who started the National Ranger uh, Memorial Foundation, which uh, maintains the uh, uh, Ranger Memorial at Fort Benning, where there are more than 8,000 stones. Uh, of Rangers. So I did their newsletter. And in 2010, the Nisei, there were 14 Japanese American interpreters called Nisei. Most of them came from the internment camps into the Marauders. And they had been with the military intelligence service, the school. And um, the, the MIS, military intelligence service, in uh, 2010 was awarded a Congressional Gold Medal, and three of those men were in the Ranger Hall of Fame. So I did a newsletter on that, and, and I always gave everything to Daddy to proof. And so Dad was reading it, and he came across his buddy, Roy Matsumoto's name, and he looked up and he said, why can't we get this for the rest of the men? And so at that time, the Merrill's Marauders Proud Descendants uh, was still active, and it, it replaced our father's organization, which had to be disbanded because they had gotten too old to handle it. So uh, the descendants was formed. So I proposed to the board that we pursue it, and, and the board agreed. And that was 10 years ago, uh, Pete. Wow. And this is 2020, and now they have... Uh, Okay, the Congressional Gold Medal, the President signed uh, okay. the Congressional Gold Medal Act over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And, Joni, um, I, uh, hey, Joni, i got, I got to interrupt you. We're going to the last break, 
And yeah, you're right. It was uh, President Trump that signed it uh, this past Saturday. So that was great. But folks, we'll be right back. We got to go to our last break, and we'll be uh, we'll be back with the Royal Marauders expert. <laughs> If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show. On America's Web Radio, join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, Joey, uh, uh, you mentioned that airfield that they attacked. Uh, yes. If I recall, there weren't that, as you mentioned, there weren't that many morale marauders left due to disease and everything else. But that air base was protected by about 4,500 Japanese, wasn't it? Well, not at the time. Uh, It it may have been in the overall picture, uh, Pete, that um, they evidently weren't paying that much attention, or 200 guys, uh, you know, couldn't have captured it it at that time. And what happened is that um, uh, uh, Colonel Hunter was the one who took them on home to the airfield. And he was not given orders to capture the town of Michinel. The Marauder objective was only the airfield, and um, and they were not given the orders to capture the town. And so, when the order to capture the town came in, as the replacements were coming in, uh, you know, and all of this was happening pretty fast, uh, the Japanese had had time to build up reinforcements uh, in the town of Michinel. And it was a hellacious battle. You know, the, the 200 Merrill's Marauders, and we have two who are alive right now who were healthy enough. They were part of that 200 that were healthy enough to continue fighting with the replacements and also to go on and fight with the 475th Infantry, which became the Mars Task Force. And those two men are Bob Passanisi and, um, and, and Gabriel Kenny. But when they finally, um, you know, captured the uh, the town, uh, the unit was deactivated um, August 10th in 1944, and Daddy was uh, uh, sent back to the states, I believe, August. I mean, in July 25th. Um, but I want to back up for a minute, Pete. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I want to talk about the Battle of Napunga because the Marauders. The Marauders uh, fought, uh, there, there were three battalions, but they weren't together. You know, they were separate. They were, and they, they traveled in long columns with their mules. And the Battle of Nipunga was called Maggot Hill. And it's when the second battalion, which my dad was a part of, was surrounded for almost two weeks by the Japanese. 
And, you know, so the 1st and the 3rd Battalion had to fight their way back and to rescue them, which they did on Easter Sunday, 1944. And the smell, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to say that, but you can, you can picture the men, the, the mules, you know, had been killed and they polluted the water hole and, um, you know, their supplies fell outside their perimeter. But on Easter Sunday, 1944, they were rescued. And almost every man from the 2nd Battalion remembered on Easter Sunday that that was the day they were rescued. There was a Lieutenant Healy, and one of his sons said that his dad was not a religious person. But on Easter Sunday, he took all the kids to uh, sunrise service, and they never knew why until they got older and found out what it meant to their to their dad and um and on the 70th anniversary of easter sunday daddy and a bunch of us would get together after church and we went to brunch out at fort benning and we had a special cake made for dad and it said you know 70th anniversary napunga rescue and all the rangers came around daddy and had their photos taken with him and so daddy wanted to talk to somebody that evening and i said well you can talk to roy matsumoto one of the nisei and Roy lived in Friday Harbor, Washington. So Daddy called Roy, who was 100, uh, 100 years old at that time, and they started talking. And all they could talk about was the fried chicken and bread that had been airdropped to them. And Roy, who was Japanese-American and, you know, educated in Japan, born in this country, um, said that even though he was Japanese, on every Easter Sunday, his family had... Uh, fried chicken, and one, and then the next morning, um, Karen, uh, Roy's daughter, called Daddy, and Roy had died during the night, and he was only um, probably less than two weeks away from turning 101. But what's significant about Roy is Roy had, I want to say, three or four brothers fighting for Japan, and his parents lived at Hiroshima. And nobody knew until after the war who had survived, and they all survived. But I want to quickly tell you about some of the other marauders. Tom Sabuto was another Japanese-American. He lived to 102 and was very briefly the oldest Army Ranger taking the place of uh, a World War II Ranger who was actually from Atlanta. And he was getting ready to turn 103 when he died. But on December 7th, 1941, Tom, who lived in Hawaii, was uh, on maneuvers with the National Guard. And they thought all the firing was part of their maneuvers, but it wasn't. So on December the 8th, because he was Japanese and fluent uh, in the language, he had also been educated in Japan, um, he saw this half-naked man walking down the road with a dazed expression, and he started interrogating him in Japanese. And that was the only survivor of the Japanese two-man mini-subs that tried to reach land. And Tom Sabuta actually captured, helped capture, the United States' first POW in World wow. War II. And then later went on to volunteer for the, uh, for the marauders. Um, William Lloyd Osborne, another marauder, escaped the Bataan Death March 
and uh, stole uh, a rickety sailboat with uh, another man. Uh, they didn't escape together, and they sailed 3,200 miles across the Pacific to Australia, and then later he volunteered for the Marauders. I mean, they were they were a motley crew. They they really were. They've been called the dead end kids, um, and everything from misfits to magnificent. And whatever it was that that kept them together, um, or whatever they experienced, is what made them strong enough to do what they did. Um, they had no choice. There was no way out. You know, they they, they just had to had to keep walking, and Daddy said, um, he said, we, all we could do was put one foot in front of the other, and, um, you know, at night, they, they did a lot of traveling at night, and Dad said he, that there was some plant that he would, you could rub on the, the guy in front of him, you know, so that it kind of glowed in the dark, so you could you could see where it was going. And uh, one of the other problems was isolation. You know, they were completely cut off, uh, you know, from, from the entire world. Uh, the, the battalions communicated by radio. Oh, and Daddy said their call signs on the radio were like cigarettes for, for his battalion at the time, like Old Gold Chesterfield and, you know, and, and, and all those cigarettes. Um, and I did want to say that Daddy went on. Uh, um, he w- he actually uh, was in Korea three times um, in 1949, attached to the Seventh Division. Went to Hawaii, brought Mom and I over. Uh, I was, you know, very young uh, to Hawaii until the Korean War broke out in '50, um, and Dad shipped out with the Fifth Regimental Combat Team to Korea. And he served there until um, March of 1951, and he was actually the first uh, soldier in Knoxville, Tennessee, home from the Korean War. And Daddy said, Pete, that of the two wars, that Korea was the worst war for him, you know, because it was constant. And I think it's because he was older. And he was actually on orders for Vietnam uh, when he had enough time to retire. Because, you know, keep in mind, Daddy would be 102, and they were already calling him Dad and Pop, <laughs> you know, in the <laughs> Korean uh, War. And and so uh, he said, I think they're trying to kill me. Maybe I better quit. <laughs> but, I want, but I want to bring up uh, uh, another point. Uh, Gilbert Hallam, 97, in New Jersey, still playing golf like Dad did up until he was 95. And the only reason he quit, because I was too weak, you know, with what I was going through physically to drive the golf cart. But Gilbert Hallen was like Dad, World War II, Korea, plus he did two combat tours in Vietnam. So the 5307th has three men who are triple combat infantrymen badge recipients, which I think is pretty huge for a small unit. That is amazing. Uh, The Morale Marauders, they, they entered Burma, with 2,750 men. Do you know how many came out? That's correct. 
That's correct, right under, uh, and some of those men, um, you know, had been assigned to, um, to the C 47s that, that flew out of, um, uh, India to, uh, to supply the marauders. Uh, you know, and some of them went down on their planes. And, you know, there have been ceremonies at Arlington, uh, where the bodies of some of those men who have been recovered. Um, you know, were buried uh, in recent years, like in the past 10 decades. Oh, and another thing I wanted to say, I mean, Merrill's Marauders have had to fight for everything, including the Congressional Gold Medal. They had to fight to, to I mean, to, to undergo, like most people in war, but they, have re- they really struggle to, to, to reach their objective and, and to, uh, you know, and to... And to, to, to get the congressional um, gold medal, and it, it, it's just been an unbelievable struggle for those men, and that we have nine alive is amazing. But Bob Passanisi was one of seven brothers, uh, six fought, uh, in, no, five fought in uh, uh, World War II, include, and he had a brother in World War One. Oh, and the oldest Merrill's Marauder was uh, a veteran of World War One. He was with the Canadian Black Watch Highlanders, and um, and then James Richardson, who's ninety nine years old today, he had he also had five brothers fighting in Europe, and they all came home except for one, who's buried there in Normandy. Raleigh Mays, who lives in Wisconsin, James lives in Tennessee. Raleigh Mays lives in Wisconsin. He had five brothers fighting, and they all went home. And two of the marauders right now, Pete, you know, we've got COVID-19 going on, which is very difficult uh, uh, for men their age. And two of them are in long-term care facilities. Uh, One is Rocco DeLuca, who just turned 98, and uh, he lives in Connecticut. And the other one is Raleigh Mays, who I just mentioned, who lives in Wisconsin. Uh, but and So the two oldest are 99, and Gabriel Kinney, who lives over in Alabama, just celebrated his 75th wedding anniversary. Uh, oh, and he and his wife have a senior apartment. How many people do you know who've been married 75 years? Not that many. That's, that's <laughs> true. Right, we've got to start we are, wrapping up, guys. Yeah, we're getting to the close of the program here, Joni. I have some uh, a statement here. It said the Marauders suffered 272 killed, 955 wounded, and 980 evacuated for illness and disease, and many of them died later uh, of disease. Right. Well, I want to bring up something here, too. Yeah, um, uh, a lot of those men were in a hospital. They were taken out of their hospitals and put into combat, even though they were not fit for combat, to hold the airfield and fight for the town. And that um, led hey, to... Joni, uh, Joni, Joni, we're at the end of the program. Uh, I okay, know we could talk, okay, I'll be quiet. We, we, <laughs> we could talk for the next three hours. I know we could. These were the unsung heroes of World War II. Uh, keep their memory alive, uh, Joni. I know you will. You're a remarkable lady, and God bless you, and you take care, and we shall talk later, okay? Thank you so much, Pete. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Great, great interview. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.